0: Where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church-Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, May 17th, we're studying Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 19. Saul continues his murderous threats against the church until the Lord Jesus appears to him in a blinding light in a meeting that changes everything. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appled. Pastor Appled serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appled, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Tim. I'm happy especially to be on to talk about St. Paul.
0: That's Perfect. right. The namesake of your congregation there in Paducah. Yeah. This is a pretty key text within the book of Acts and really within Paul's, I mean, his whole life. It's something that comes up in multiple places, not only in the book of Acts, but in the letters of Paul. Give us the context we need to know as we approach this part of Acts 9 today.
1: Sure. Um, well, you've got—there um, there. is an overlap between, say, the the ministry of St. Paul and St. Peter kind of is the key figure in the initial part of the book of Acts. But here is really where, at least in the book of Acts, I think uh, Paul gets introduced right at the end of chapter 8, correct? Um and so this is kind of at the end of the the stoning of Saint Stephen, and that's where we first meet Paul, uh, who's called Saul at that point, and uh, and so it's it's really the transition uh, in his own life, um, but also then in the bigger picture of the church, you've got the the beginning of the intense persecution. Saint Stephen is the first martyr, and so the. Uh, of course, the apostles had been meeting resistance all along. They were put in prison. They were told not to say the name of Jesus. Uh, but now we're at a stage where the persecution has ramped up to the point of um, Christians and especially ministers of the word are at the risk of their of losing their life. And Saul is the one who's at least in. I don't. I don't know if he's the head honcho, but he is carrying out. Some part of that persecution, and so this chapter nine, Jesus is going to get a hold of him and take him from persecutor to apostle. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we did meet him at the end of Acts seven, beginning of chapter eight, seemingly a minor figure at that point. Perhaps he's the one that's approving of the execution. He's looking for more opportunity, and and by the beginning of chapter nine, we learned that he is the. I don't know how you, you think of him the, the head of the secret police maybe has too many modern connotations, but he, he he's in charge of the persecution. He seems pretty zealous for us for this as well. I mean his his heart is in what he's doing. And it, it's been quite striking since we met Saul. You know, we heard about how Philip, he's been the primary figure in chapter eight. Philip took the gospel to Samaria and to the Ethiopian eunuch as the Lord maybe a countermeasure against the persecution, and now the Lord's going to—I don't know—take the fight, or He's going to to go right at the heart of the persecution by by coming to Saul himself.
1: Yeah, I like to think of it this way, Tim. Just to kind of the um, the dramatic irony uh, of this whole chapter. Uh, Saul is an apostle; he's sent out by the high priest in Jerusalem, right? And he's sent out to bind um, Christians. And then Jesus, the high priest of heaven, um, gets a hold of him, and Jesus is going to send him out. So it's he's he was the apostle of the Jews and of um, the high priest in Jerusalem, and he's becoming now the apostle of Jesus Christ. So it's a switch in um, who is sending him. And then, therefore, it also includes a switch in what his, his, quote-unquote, ministry is going to be. He's not going to bind people up and take them to prison anymore, but now he's um, going to set them free through the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: Let's go ahead and and read the text then, or at least start into it. This is Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. (laughs) But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest... But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. That takes us through verse 9 of the text. Let us pause there. So, again, Saul comes back on the scene at the beginning of chapter 9. We last met him at the beginning of chapter 8. And he's doing what he had been doing the last time we met him, and and even more so. Now his persecution spreads beyond Jerusalem. He's going all the way to Damascus. Maybe just give us a little bit of of geography and and the context. What's Saul doing going to Damascus? Take us into his background here.
1: Sure. We know, I think from uh, Philippians 3, Paul talks a little bit about his... Um, standing as a Jew um, before he's converted to Christianity. But um, he he was originally from Tarsus, which is kind of modern-day Turkey. So a little bit further north, uh, even of Damascus. And he came to Jerusalem um, to be taught. And he was a student of Gamaliel, who was one of the, I think he came up in uh, earlier in the book of Acts. Chapter five. Yeah, Chapter five. And uh, so he came to Jerusalem. He was being trained, taught a disciple of Gamaliel, who was like, you know, the guy, the ultimate rabbi. Um, And he was the ultimate student. So he was the head of his class. He was um, zealous for everything. Um, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, of the tribe of Benjamin. He surpassed all his kinsmen, all his peers in terms of being zealous for the law. And here we, we find he's zealous then to carry out the, um, well, what in his mind, he's thinking, we've got to put down the heretics. We've got to Mm -hmm. silence these Christians or as they're called here, followers of the way. And in order to do that, um, he's there's threats. Um, there's the the threat of murder, even, or of he's going to put them to death. And then he also comes from Jerusalem up to Damascus uh, with authority. That's the significance of he has the papers. So this is not just Saul, you know, kind of carrying out vigilante justice. He's not Batman. Um, he is sent. He is authorized and sent, and that's what I was referring to being an apostle, uh, you know, in the, the lowercase apostle kind of here. He is the representative of the high priest in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, right, that uh, the, the Jews are not content to just say, all right, we're going to keep Jerusalem pure. Um, they have a sense of the whole, you know, dispersion that the Jews everywhere need to be kept safe from these um, heretics in their mind. And so Paul or Saul, you'll have to pardon me if I That's just <laughs> go back and forth on him. Um, he is sort of the one who's going to go, all right, look, um, I'm not content just to, to keep the capital city, you know, good. I want to go out and I want to go up to uh, Damascus, which is north uh, of Jerusalem, and Damascus, um, if I recall correctly, is isn't Damascus the that was the capital city of um, the northern kingdom
0: of uh, Israel? Well, I think it's split it, Syria and Assyria. That's that's where it is. The capital of the northern okay. kingdom would have been Samaria, but oftentimes I think they would have found themselves allied with Damascus. I, I believe Damascus right, right, is right. where what's his name? In is from. Damascus in the book of second Kings and and it's known they've got rivers. So they are, they're foreigners, but as you mentioned, the dispersion would have taken Jews there. And so there would have been plenty of people familiar with the Israelite faith.
1: You're right. So then it's the next um, nation or the next, you know, big city beyond the borders of Israel, beyond even the Old Testament borders of Israel.
0: Right, which, and I suppose that's significant even within the book of Acts, as you think about the way the gospel has already spread. We've talked about the the spread to Samaria through Philip and now moving even farther beyond that. Even though Luke doesn't officially tell us how it got there, there are already Christians in Damascus at this point.
1: Yeah, and actually, this is one of the things that the um, the dispersion of the Jews from you know, if you think back to both the um, the northern exile and then also the probably the more significant exile of the the southern kingdom of Judah, when those Jews go out from Jerusalem, from Judah, from Israel, they don't all come back, Mm. and uh, that's always one of the shocks when you get to books like Nehemiah and Ezra, Mm. and especially Esther, um, that why didn't they go back home and what they're doing there, you know, we don't, you know, I can't speak specifically to everyone's intentions, but, um, what the Lord does is that he, these are sort of ready-made, um, missionary little Mm -hmm. preaching posts. And so when the apostles go, um, and you can see this in Paul's own ministry, he's always going first to the, the synagogues that are already established. Where did they come from? well from that time of being dispersed.
0: Mm. One thing I don't want to skip over too quickly, but we don't need to spend a ton of time on it, is the name that's given to Christians here, they're those who are belonging to the way. And I think this is the first time we've seen it in the book of Acts, and it's, I believe, a unique way that the book of Acts speaks about Christianity. Just comment briefly on that before we keep going with the account on Saul.
1: Sure. So Jesus' uh, words are certainly behind this, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so his disciples were followers of the way. Um, this is a biblical, uh, uh, theme that goes back. Um, for instance, look at the, the very first Psalm, um, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the mm-hmm. wicked or sits in the seat of the scoffers, um, or, or stands with the sinners, but his delight is in the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So these two ways, mm-hmm. um, comes up in the book of Proverbs quite often. There's the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness or of foolishness. So when Jesus comes along and says, hey, look, I am the way, all that Old Testament um, background is is right underneath the surface. And the earliest before they're called Christians, um, they're called, yeah, followers of the way, disciples of
0: the way. And that old testament background of there there are these two ways, you know, one being the way of righteousness and the other way of evil. Mm-hmm. Saul at this point has those reversed. He he believes that he is following the way that the Lord has set. You know, I mean you mentioned he's he's got the authority of the chief priests. And at this point, he he believes he's got the authority of God behind all that. He he thinks he is on the side, on the way of righteousness. When in fact he's not, because he's not on the way that Jesus has set before him. So Jesus comes and meets him here in Damascus on the way, and and wow, where do we want to start with this, Pastor Appold? How about the the light that that's involved in the appearance yeah. of Jesus?
1: Yeah. So the the suddenness and the flashing. Um, I think the best way to think of this, this is not just like, you know, the sunrise that's slow, you can see it coming and the, you know, the light is getting brighter in the east. And then, oh, here comes the sunrise. It's lightning, right? And uh, this is, it's like heaven breaking um, breaking in. I think that's really what we, what we should envision here is a flash. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, yeah, this is a, a kind of, it knocks Saul down, right? He falls down and it blinds him. So there is a a, um, a violence to it um, that, you know, the Lord is a man of war. And mm-hmm. here's this guy who's threatening the Lord's people. Well, Jesus is going to deal with him um, in pretty harsh ways. And we'll talk about that maybe when we talk about he's going to make Saul suffer. Is that you know punishment or is that not? That, that's an interesting question. But it's the, the sudden boom and the light and Paul falls down, right? And he can't see anymore.
0: Well, so talk about the, the figure of light here. I mean, obviously the light is a literal thing. There is this blinding light, mm-hmm. but it in, involved in the whole narrative then is the matter of Saul's blindness. And then eventually he is receiv- he receives his ability to see again. So how does that light, darkness, seeing, blindness factor into sure. this account?
1: Yeah, you, you think, okay, Jesus could um, he could appear, he could manifest himself to, to Saul in any way that he might want. He could have chosen darkness. Um, and you maybe you think of like Mount Sinai and the dark cloud that hangs over the mountain. Um, and the Lord says, I will dwell in thick darkness. Um, but there's also many, many places where appearances of God come with light and with brightness. Um, Especially when you get to say, like, think of the prophetic calls and the the three big prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. I think this is maybe closest to what happens to Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel has this vision of the cherubim and they, they move like lightning. And um, they flash here and there, and they're they're kind of these terrifying figures. And Ezekiel's overcome when he sees this, but this is part of um, God displaying His greatness, um, His power, His majesty, um, and that that brightness. Then Paul, when he talks about God, he says He dwells in unapproachable light. Um, we can't see Him because He is um, He's too bright for us. Um, and I think that. As Jesus comes to him here, certainly um, we can sometimes speak of light as being a, a welcome thing, a war- the warmth of um, of light. Uh, but here it's that it's lightning, it's power. It's meant to convey pa- God's power, and that's why Jesus chooses it. You know, he he doesn't want to come to Paul in darkness. He wants to manifest himself with this bright, kind of like transfiguration, a, a bit of a transfiguration appearance for um, for
0: Paul. Well, with this bright transfiguration-type appearance for, for Saul, and the fact that he is blind by the end of it, he doesn't regain his sight until later. I mean, what does that indicate about the, I don't know if I can say it like this, the steps of of Saul's conversion here? What what happens to him on the road? And I know we haven't read everything yet, but how, how does it work? What's Jesus doing here in his appearance, and what's still left... That needs to be done afterwards.
1: Yeah, he well, he's enlightening. We sometimes think about the different ways that we could talk about conversion. It's um, it's a new birth. Uh, that that figure is often used in scripture. It's a, a turning around, right? Um, that's repentance—to turn away and turn back to the Lord. Um, we talk. This will be familiar to many of our listeners in the um, in the meaning of the third article of the creed: the Holy Spirit calls us by the gospel, enlightens us with his gifts, okay? So this idea of enlightenment, and you get that idea of going from I was in the dark, and then when I when I hear the gospel, um, it's like the, the lights come on in the room. I know God. I know Jesus. I know his love for me. Um, but it's interesting that Paul doesn't just—he doesn't go from darkness to light. When the light comes in, it actually— it puts him into darkness, so he has to be. I think that this is the way that that I read it, and I think this is the right way to take it. He has to be humbled first, right? And and if you think about Paul, what he talks about when he talks about his own conversion, especially in Philippians three, um, he goes through this whole list of here's what I was, and mm-hmm. when he talks about himself, you know, he's not. He he does. He's not self-deprecating. You know, he's he's I was top of the class. I was number one. I was the best of the best. And I lost it all. Hmm. So when he's converted, he loses everything. Um, It's and this is interesting, too, when he talks in First Corinthians 15, he says that Jesus appeared. This is a resurrection appearance of Jesus. Hmm. And Paul lists it along with the, the other Easter appearances that we're maybe a little more familiar with calling resurrection appearances. But he says that um, Jesus appeared to him as to one untimely born. And that's a very interesting way of talking about what's happening because, um, okay, it's a new birth, right? Mm. But the language he uses, I I was one untimely born. He's a, a premature baby. And it's actually maybe even a little more descriptive. Like he was almost like an aborted baby. Hmm. So is he dying or is he coming alive? Is he being enlightened or is he being put in the dark? These things blend together. And I think that's helpful to think about conversion. He's losing everything, but gaining something far greater, which is the way he talks in Philippians three. I lost my old self. I was put to death, Uh, but what I gained was Christ. And that's far greater than you know, being top of the class and the, you know, Pharisee of Pharisees. Hmm.
0: I I think that that's an important point to consider, And, and maybe we can pick it up again later when we talk about the role of Ananias in this. But it is, I think it's important to consider because on the one hand, what happens to Saul on the road to Damascus seems entirely foreign to us or entirely different than the way that you and I were brought to faith. And yet on the other hand, Saul receives the word from Ananias. It's, it's not done after you, there's this blinding light. He still needs that gospel proclaimed to him. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's an important thing to see so that we don't perhaps become jealous of Saul and, and the experience that he had and think that somehow we were left out in some way, shape, or form, but that the way that Saul was brought to faith, although there is certainly a uniqueness in the fact that Jesus does show up in the risen flesh, you know, I mean, so that he is made an apostle at the same time, the way Saul is brought to faith through the word that's proclaimed by Ananias is the same way that the spirit still does things today for us.
1: Yeah. If you really, if you, you know, just kind of follow the progression here, what has Saul learned? Okay. He's learned that he was persecuting the Lord. And, um, now in other account, like Saul talks about his conversion in other places, and uh, I've already touched on a few of the other epistle places. But later in the book of Acts, he gives a little more detail about what Jesus says to him. But in Acts 9, all we know is Jesus appears to him. Saul doesn't know who he is. He's blinded. Um, And all he hears is, Saul, you've been persecuting me. So imagine this, right? You've got this intense light. You know you're in the presence of the Lord because Paul, Saul says to him, who are you, Lord? I mean, he knows, he knows it's God, but who, who you know, mm-hmm. please identify yourself further. And uh, Jesus says, you are persecuting me. So there is the, just the sinking feeling. I have mm-hmm. been persecuting, um, not heretics, but I've been persecuting the Lord Jesus. And we might want to talk about that. There's a great comfort there for Christians, but for Paul, for Saul, it's, that must have been the worst moment of his life, you know, to realize everything I thought I was doing for good, I've been, I've Mm. been on the bad side. Mm.
0: Well, go ahead and talk more about that. The, the fact that Jesus identifies himself as the one being persecuted, Paul's been persecuting Christians. Jesus says you're persecuting me. Go ahead and, and talk about the, the importance of that and the comfort that's there.
1: Yeah, this is part of the, um, the The union that Christ has with His body, the Church, is really, I think, it's not explicitly s- said here, but what's implied when Jesus says, "You've been persecuting me," is that He is somehow mysteriously present with His members. So, um, you know, we talk about Christ the Head and the Church His body. He's the the Bridegroom; the Church is His bride. Um, but. I think the body image is helpful here when i you know when I stub my toe I feel it all through the whole body and um, what Jesus is saying here is that look none of my none of my followers um, think of stephen think of the apostles um, but then just these other unnamed Christians who saul has probably put in prison um, and perhaps some some other ones have been killed we only know that saint stephen is the only one whose death we know of for sure is a martyrdom at this point but um if they did it to stephen it's probably likely that they if they could get their hands on anybody else that they put them to death too um and those who suffer when you suffer for christ's sake um you're never uh, alone Right. Uh, Think of some of the great passages. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. God says to Israel, Um, God says to his church and Jesus talks in Matthew 25. He talks about um, whatsoever you do to my brothers, you you do to me. Well, how can that be? It's because he's present with his church, even though he's invisibly present. um, He's he's present.
0: Yeah. I mean, is it, is it Hebrews where, where the author talks about that he is not ashamed to be called their brothers. And, and so in this way, Jesus is not ashamed to identify himself with the ones who suffer for his sake as he speaks to Saul here. And I think this, this relates to the way Paul will speak later in his own epistles about not being ashamed of, of being associated with him. And I think it's when he writes to Timothy he talks about those who are willing to to stick with him and the importance of us as Christians sticking with each other when we undergo persecution and shame for the sake of being Christians, that because Jesus identifies himself with us, then we also are, are willing to identify with each other to suffer together as Christians and not just yeah. individually.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's helpful. Um, this is something that I, that's come to to light uh to use the the light imagery um in the last few years um we you know there's different kinds of persecution there's any kind of suffering for the sake of the faith um that's persecution right um but the kind of suffering that say stephen underwent was the intense you know physical persecution mm-hmm. um but we also we experience mockery and more and more christianity is um it's I don't think anybody's going to kill you because you're a, a pastor, right, Tim? But, um, you know, you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Tim Apple. What do you do, Tim? I'm a pastor. Oh, one of those. Right. <laughs> um, and so the, just the sort of belittling, the scoffing, um, that, too, is a kind of a persecution. Now, it's not it's much lighter, um, but it's easy for us to say, well, if, you know, if my brothers and sisters were physically suffering, I would support them. Um, It's much harder to say when Christians are looked down on or belittled because they're, you know, fundamentalists or, um, you know, just strange people to the the eyes of the world. It's actually helpful for us to say, all right, if I want to show solidarity um, with Christians in their sufferings, I should also be willing to have some solidarity with them in this in kind of just the, the light Pers- forms of persecution so, so to stand up and say hey that I'm one of them too um, is at least the beginning of that kind of solidarity
0: right and and it comes from the fact that Jesus has solidarity with us that he is the one who who stands with us when we are persecuted he is persecuted with us and that brings great comfort to us we're going to keep looking at this text from acts 9 on the other side of the break you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO talking to Pastor David Appold this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, May 17th. We're studying Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19 with Pastor David Appled. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appled, prior to the break, we were looking at Paul's encounter with the risen Lord. We took the text through verse 9. At this point, Paul has been blinded, and he is now in Damascus for three days He hasn't seen anything, and he is also fasting. So we pick up the text again in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying He was with the disciples at Damascus. That takes us through the end of our text, through Acts 9, verse 19. So Ananias comes into the the account here. Do we know anything more about Ananias other than what we get from this text?
1: I don't think so. I, I was trying to remember if he was mentioned among the, um, the seven deacons, you know, that Stephen was included in that list, and I don't think he's no, there. No, I don't Philip. think so. Yeah, Philip was also one of those seven, kind of, you know, that those first non twelve guys who are sent out. So he just pops up here, and he's got this special call and this special mission, and then he fades away. And uh, you gotta love Ananias. You gotta right. feel a little bit for him. Um, and actually, this is uh, when the Lord calls uh, people. There's there's often um, it's often dangerous. So Moses. Moses, um, here I am, Lord, and so then he's going to send him into right into the heart of, you know, the beast, and he's going to go into Egypt a- before Moses. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Lord. Go and sacrifice your son. Mm. Ooh, you know, um, and then even Saul, Saul, you know, in a lot of ways, what happens to Saul is a burning bush kind of a thing, right? I am Jesus. Even that, the hearkening back to the name, the divine name. But with Ananias here, he's he's ready to go. Ananias, oh, yes, I'm ready. And okay, go and find Saul. And I think there's something to this. This, um, uh, You know, in the Old Testament, God uses the, ju- he calls the judges, hmm. and often their, their task is to go and deliver God's people from the enemies, from the Midianites with Gideon, from the Philistines with Samson. Um, well, isn't that what's happening here? God is calling Ananias, and he sends him on what in Ananias's mind is a dangerous mission. Mm -hmm. He's going to deliver God's people from, uh, the enemy Saul who's, who's out to kill them. Uh, but he's going to do it in a way that isn't just, it's unlike the judges Mm -hmm. in this way, the judges crushed their enemies, right? Gideon is a, is a military guy. Samson is a great powerful, uh, warrior. Well, Ananias goes and he brings a message he brings the gospel and through that preaching of the gospel to Saul and through the sacrament then of baptism this is how um, God's people are saved from their enemies now so that's that divine warfare there is this progression it's not it's no longer um, destruction by the sword now it's carrying out the fight by the Spirit
0: hmm. I think that's a helpful point to make particularly when you think about some of the ways that the psalms teach us to pray against our enemies to recognize that one of the ways the lord the lord actually defeats our enemies is sometimes by converting them as is yeah. as the case here and and Ananias you know his, I don't know if, if it's a, an objection or just a, uh, it's probably just an honest question. Like, Lord, do you, you know who this is, don't you? <laughs> uh, you know, of, of, yeah. When you think about some of the examples that you mentioned, he, he responds quite faithfully. I mean, you know, Moses objected quite a bit more than Ananias does. When you think about the way Ananias, he receives this word in faith.
1: Yeah and it's it's worth pointing out the the difference so Ananias looks at Saul and he says, "Oh Jesus, he's a great persecutor. He's he's a real problem for us." And Jesus's response is, "No, he's a chosen vessel. You know, he's just an instrument." And that word instrument uh, is the same thing that Paul talks about. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Mm-hmm. Um he's referring to his own uh, physical body as a, a body of weakness, of, of nothing special, really. And so uh, the enemies of the church that in the mind of Ananias and probably the other Christians, this guy is, he's he's bad news, Jesus. We can't deal with him. We don't know what to do with him. Jesus is like, no, he's just an instrument. He's just a pot. You know, he's, he's he, I'm going to use him. I'm going to use him for my good. And I think that difference of just how, and there, in some ways you can't blame, well, we, we would, we view, you know, the enemies of the gospel today as very powerful forces in the world around us. Um, but to Jesus, um, you know, the most powerful enemy is no, you know, it's just no problem. No
0: problem. Right. So let's talk a little bit more about the role of Ananias here. We, we mentioned this before the break that Jesus has appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. He's left him blind Why didn't, if I can say it this way, why didn't Jesus finish the job himself? Why does he bring Ananias into the account and give him the role that he does?
1: Yeah, uh, I love this. I think that's a great way to put it, that Jesus, and this is worth pointing out, Jesus could have done it if he wanted to. Jesus, there's nothing that prevents Jesus from being both the one who blinds Saul and opens his eyes. Um, But what you see here is the, the privilege that's given to the church. Um, Jesus did not uh, entrust the gospel to angels. He entrusts it to his disciples, and he calls his disciples. He gives us this privilege to, um, to work for him, to have a place in the advance of his kingdom. Um, this is this comes up in the gospels, right? When Jesus tells people, don't, don't talk about me, and he tells even the demons, you know, be, be silent, don't reveal who I am. Why? Well, because that, that role is reserved for his brothers. That role is reserved for his disciples, and it's a great honor. It also serves the purpose of connecting uh, Saul to the earth, the earthly church, mm-hmm. right, or to the, um, the apostles. And so he is not, you know, a free agent who God is doing a bunch of different things, um, but everyone is all of the disciples are to work together in the one church. And uh, Saul, even though he has a unique calling here, he is not um, he's not doing his own thing. So you don't have the church of Saul, the mm-hmm. church of Peter, the church of um Who else? Stephen, the Church of Philip. It's one church with many ministers.
0: Hmm. Now, that is not to de-emphasize the fact that the risen Lord does show up to Saul in the text, because, as you mentioned, he brings that up in his own epistles, and he, he shows that he has the authority of an apostle because Jesus appeared to him in this way. Yeah. At the same time, the fact that Jesus, and, and Jesus does finish the job, he just does it through Ananias. That is is also an important point to see the importance of what he does, what our Lord does through the holy ministry. And and you see something, I think, similar just in the very previous text with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, that the angel directs Philip where to go. The, the spirit then tells Philip to go to the chariot. It's not the angel going to the eunuch directly or the spirit speaking directly but it is again through that preaching that happens through the church the same thing happens here in acts chapter 9 and again that's what happens today so we don't have anything less than what these people in the book of acts had
1: and when when ananias gets to him um so saul has not seen anything for three days he hasn't eaten anything for three days um he's just been praying that he's basically um you know his conversion is he's he's going from being dead to being made alive, right? It's a it's a kind of a violent um, act. And I, I sometimes wonder if he was do you think he was maybe mute? And de- the text doesn't say, but it just looks at that blindness. But I wonder if, if he said anything, if he could hear anything. He's just he's just knocked out. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Ananias comes to him with this message um, that the Lord Jesus has sent me now to you, and you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, mm. and that, that that the term that he uses is important. He calls him brother, yeah. um, which which this is not just like Hulk Hogan running around calling everybody brother. <laughs> um, as great as it would be to be called brother by the Hulkster, um, this there's something. Um, very deeply significant. The persecutor of the church, Ananias, was afraid of this guy. And now when he comes to him, the first thing he says is, you are my brother. Um, I love it when Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, go and tell my brothers that I have not yet ascended to my father and your father, that familial bond. um, I have two brothers and I love them very much. Um, To be called a brother by Jesus is not you know it's not just a throwaway word um, it's it has deep significance
0: yeah no, and and that's i love the way that that starts with Ananias' words to saul that it is brother that's the first word out of his mouth which is essentially i think i mean that's the absolution that ananias is speaking to saul just by calling him brother the full forgiveness of sins is is right yeah. there in that word yeah you're one of
1: us yeah and so you know saul hears that and then everything you know this is all, it's all spaced out over the course of what, three days. Um, And that's, that's important too, right? Paul is going to experience a death and a resurrection on the third day. He's put to death on the road to Damascus. He's raised here then in Damascus, and it happens through holy baptism, right? Um, But if you try to space it out and say like, well, this should be the paradigm for every Christian, I think you're, you're pushing things too far. The -hmm. whole thing is Saul's conversion. That includes the, you know, the experience of his sin and the knowledge that comes that I've been persecuting the Lord, the Lord, (laughs) you know, who I thought I was serving. I've been hurting him. Um, That's that intense kind of sorrow and contrition that surely was worked in, in Saul. And then being raised here, like you said, being called brother by Ananias. Um, And then being baptized receiving the Holy Spirit um, all that stuff it's all it's a package deal
0: before we get too far into what happens there with Saul at the end of the text talk more about what the Lord tells Ananias about Paul as this chosen instrument of mine he tells Ananias what Saul will do what's there yeah. in this a commissioning and ordination of sorts what what's going on here
1: yeah um, we call it Paul's conversion, but it's it's more than just his conversion. He gets um, he goes from uh, persecutor to apostle, and so he has to be um, he has to be converted. But he also um, gets a new mission, and so he's commissioned. Here he is sent out, and the the name of Jesus is what's focused on. Right, Paul is going to carry the name of Jesus everywhere that he goes, and you get that universal Gentiles, kings, and the children, the sons of Israel. Okay, and then the second part of it, he's also this. I hinted at this earlier. Jesus is going to, going to make Paul suffer, and uh, you you almost wonder. Like when I was reading this, getting ready for our, our show today, I I wondered. I never had thought about this before, but I wonder if Ananias was like, "That's right, <laughs> you know, he's going to get his. He's been making us suffer. Now he's going to suffer." Um, but that's. And there may be some sense where that's, I, I just, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He's going to show him um, how much he must suffer. And through those sufferings, what what is the Lord Jesus doing to St. Paul? He's not just punishing him because he suffered, you know, he persecuted the church before, um, but he's being conformed. This is the way Paul talks about our sanctification. We are conformed through our sufferings. Um, into the image of Jesus. So he's going to be made to look like um, the Lord Jesus. And you can think, I mean, Paul has no problem cataloging his, uh, his sufferings, and he boasts in his sufferings. He learns this lesson um, that when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because it's in, those, it's in those things that he's forced to rely on the power of Jesus and not on the power of uh, his own education.
0: Is there also a connection in verse 16, this matter of how much he must suffer for the sake of my name? Does that tie into what we were saying about Jesus identifying himself with those who are persecuted for his name's sake, such that when, when Paul suffers for the sake of Jesus, he recognizes that Jesus is identifying with him, that the Mm -hmm. what's happened to, to Saul, Paul, is a, it's the real deal. And Paul's sufferings for the sake of Jesus, then, are a confirmation that, yes, Paul's on the—this is such a, a modern way of speaking—but he's on the right side of history. He's on the right side of this because he's with Jesus.
1: Yeah, but, well, isn't that what Paul wrote in Hebrews?
0: <laughs> it, I see what uh, you did in, there. I yeah, see what you did Hebrews, there.
1: <laughs> in Hebrews 12, it says that this is this is how God <laughs> treats his sons, and every true son is disciplined. And to be without, to go without suffering, to go without training, without discipline, um, is to be outside of the family. And so in his sufferings, Paul will all, he's also the one who writes so, so powerfully about um, I rejoice in my sufferings um, because it's through those things that I come to know um, better and better the the love of jesus that he suffered for me and this is actually all through jesus's teaching too right the slave is not greater than his master Um, if we're his friends then we will be like him and do his will and part of that um if you belong to jesus then you will experience and there's no way to say like you're gonna these are the the five uh experiences that every christian must have right um we're not getting that specific But the Christian life is a cruciform life. It is a life that looks, um, that has its crosses, and that's no mistake.
0: Mm. When Ananias lays his hands on Saul, before he's baptized, these scales fall from Saul's eyes. What's the significance of of the scales?
1: Yeah, scales, um, you know, what what comes to mind here, I I looked up that word and you can, it Um, sometimes it's used for like onion skins. Um, but definitely, uh, when I hear scales, I think of a fish Mm -hmm. or of a snake. And so it's like this shedding again, it's this Mm -hmm. emphasis. I think of the old man, the old soul is falling away and there's something and his eyes, um, that focus, especially on the eyes. Um, he has a new sight and he has a new vision and with that vision comes, a whole new way of life, and I, I think it's there may be something to this too. Um, when you think about the snake in Scripture, the serpent mm. and his scales, um, Paul was an instrument of the devil, right? Mm. Um, you can think about in John's Revelation, he talks about the synagogue of Satan, the synagogue of Satan being the the um, Jewish plots to. Disrupt the spread of the gospel. Well, now the the scales, the serpent's eyes, fall off of Paul. He's shedding that skin, and he's um, he's entering a new and better way, the living way of Jesus.
0: Mm. And I, I don't think it's an accident then that the very next thing that happens is he's he's baptized once again in the book of Acts. You see how instrumental baptism is for the work of the Church and in making disciples of Jesus. It happened on the day of Pentecost. It just happened with the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. He saw water and was baptized, and here right away Saul, too, is baptized, incorporated into this family of Jesus.
1: Yeah, it's the boundary marker, right? It's the it's the Jordan River um, that you know that you you come out of Egypt it's the red sea you come out of Egypt but it's also the jordan river that you cross to to come into um the the true land the promised land so yeah baptism has that boundary marker and i think again that emphasizes that um paul's call um brings him into the fellowship of the church. And yes, he is, he doesn't need the apostles approval. He doesn't have to have Peter look at him and say, yeah, let me give this guy a couple years and see if we like him or not, because he has Jesus's approval. He had that immediate uh, experience of the risen Lord, but the Lord Jesus um, doesn't uh, he, he loves his church, mm-hmm. and uh, that those two, this is part of the beauty of Acts, is that you don't have Jesus or the church, um, you have them both together.
0: Mm-hmm. You've mentioned several times in our conversation, Pastor Apple, that Paul refers to his conversion, this experience, in multiple places. He'll bring it up a couple times in the book of Acts. It shows up either directly or by way of allusion in several of his his epistles. Why is what happens in Acts chapter 9 to Saul, why is this so significant, not only for him, but also for the church as a whole?
1: Yeah, that's. A, I think that's a good question here for us at the end. And maybe the best spot to look at is First Timothy. Um, so we have this great hymn, Chief of Sinners Though I Be. And that comes, that language comes from First Timothy chapter one, where Paul says that he is the the chief of sinners. And um, you know, if we want to compare sinful lives, uh, we can do that off the air, okay? But Paul says that he is number one; he's the number one yeah. sinner. And um, I think he's saying that not just rhetorically, like, "Oh, I have, I was really bad when I was a kid. I, you know, I went away to college and sowed my wild oats." No, he. He was killing Christians and he was imprisoning them. And so he counts himself as the worst possible offender, the vilest offender. And I think that part of the reason that his conversion is so important for the church is that if Jesus can do this to um, the worst persecutor of the church, then there is no one, there is no one on earth who cannot be Uh, redeemed. There is no sinner so foul that the Lord Jesus can't cleanse them. There is no sin greater than the love of our Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. That's why we love to sing that hymn, um, Chief of sinners, though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me.
0: Mm. I mean, this is one of the things that our Lutheran confessions talk about when they talk about the right use of the the saints, is to see in the example of the saints that, well, if God forgave Saul— then certainly he wants to forgive me too. He wants to forgive all sinners and to take great comfort in that. I, I also like to point out, and this kind of relates to what we talked a little bit about yesterday with the text at the end of Acts 8, that look at everything that God did do through this one man, Saul. You know, I mean, and I, I know the the New Testament is of course authored by the Holy Spirit, but so much of it comes from the the pen of this man. I mean, so much the Lord and we talked about this yesterday, that the Lord loves the individual. He loves Saul. And so he brings Saul into his family because he loves Saul. He died for him. But then the great fruit that the Lord brings forth from this one man is just, it's remarkable to see. And you, I think you, you mentioned this earlier, how the, the Lord takes someone who Ananias wasn't looking for Saul to be, to become the, the next great apostle, but that's who the Lord chose and, and what great good the Lord worked through, even, even Saul
1: yeah the he starts off the chapter breathing threats and violence, and he ends now it's not in our text today, but he ends going around telling everybody Jesus is the Son of God you know just the, just that change, and this conversion is not just a it's never a minor thing now mm-hmm. when when uh um like I was baptized as an infant, right I've never known life outside of the church, so I've never been breathing threats and violence against the church. Um, But we were all born dead in our trespasses and sins. And we we were, uh, we had feudal minds and God can take that. He can take uh, what is opposed to him, the sons of disobedience and turn them into, um, you know, great servants for his kingdom. And that's displayed chiefly in Saul. His life becomes a pattern this is, again, how he talks in First Timothy. My life became a pattern for the whole church. Um, it's not just, hey, I had this private experience that's really cool, and I, I like to reflect on it. But his life is the pattern for um, for the whole church.
0: With about three minutes left, Pastor Apple, does you reflect on, on Paul's conversion here? And as he mentions it elsewhere, help us to wrap this up. Give us, again, the good news, the comfort that's ours, because the Lord did what he did for Saul?
1: I think um, the grace of God overflows to Saul. That's, again, this is the language of 1 Timothy, and that overflowing, the flashing of his, of his might and his power, and the, the terrifying thing that Saul had to experience. You know, I've been fighting against the Lord Jesus, um, but even those who oppose Jesus, are he, he loves us. Um, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, He takes those who are enemies and he makes them friends. He takes those who are opponents and he makes them proponents. And that's what you see in Saul. And um, I would want every one of our listeners to know that um, that's not just, you know, how God used to do things. Um, But this is still his heart is open Um, to us. And through the the ministry of the gospel, through the preaching of the word, he's still at work doing this. It might not be as dramatic. Um, You know, the lightning might not flash from our pulpits, Tim, but the good news does. And wherever that good news is preached, um, Jesus, you can be sure Jesus is at work.
0: Pastor David Appold is pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky, helping us today with Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today. Absolutely. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 9, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.